Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you can have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. And this is part 2 of the message to the Philadelphian church. We did part 1 last week and if you want to catch up with that, you can do so by going on the internet. We'll have that up there for you. But it's Revelation uh, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. Last week we looked at 7 and 8. We'll recap that just a little bit before we get into uh, points 3 and 4 on your outline. So as you're turning there, just to set the stage so you understand the context of what's happening... The book of Revelation is laid out in a chronological order. It is the first time any prophet ever put prophecy in chronological order. And so obviously in chronological order, we're looking at the church age, symbolized, represented by seven churches. These seven churches were particularly picked out by our Lord to send messages to them, not only for the historical situation that was going on, but also they're laid out in a chronological order to tell you and I from a prophetic standpoint how the church age will go, what the church age will look like chronologically, starting from the days of the apostles, ending with the Laodicean church, which we know as the church of apostasy. So now we're into the second of the last churches, the church of Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia was a small little church, very evangelistically oriented and very theologically astute and guarded the word of God. Even though they were small, had very little resources, they were faithful to our Lord. And because of that, he gives them no condemnation. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're not a perfect church, but they're a faithful church. The Philadelphia church, from a historical prophetic interpretation, is the remnant church in the last days. It is the remnant that will be raptured. In fact, the rap- we'll deal with the rapture today. It's actually in the text today. It's one of the most strongest texts that substantiate a pre-tribulational rapture is in this passage. And because of that, we're dealing with the faithful remnant. We're dealing with the ones who guard God's Word, who are not worldly, who evangelize and do what they're supposed to do. And so there's a lot of promises given to us, a lot of promises given to this faithful remnant, and we're going to unpack that today. A couple things. um, If we read the text, let's just go over this real quick before we jump into our text we're dealing today. Let's recap. It starts in verse 7 and says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these things says, He who is holy and he who is true. Again, that's very Jewish. The holy and true one of Israel is who it's referring to, Yahweh, which is Jesus. And so that's very Jewish. And he's holy and true in contrast to all the people coming against them, persecuting them, saying that they have the one true God and that they don't. And that's what's being said about you and I today, that The kind of Jesus we worship is not their Jesus. We'll unpack that just a little bit. But that's the accusation. And Jesus is telling this church, no, no, you are worshiping the one true God. It's them who do not worship me. It's them who are worshiping idols. So he contrasts that to what's going on in their situation. He goes, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Referring to the key of David as a treasury house of God in the prophetic standpoint, and that the door that he opens, the key of David, is the Davidic dynasty it's referring to, and that Jesus is the one who fulfills the Davidic dynasty, and he's the one who has the authority to open doors and close doors and give the Philadelphia church ministry opportunities. And he does that even for us. Jesus is the one who gives you and I the ministry opportunities right before us. He has that key of David or that authority to the Davidic dynasty and the authority of salvation and the riches thereof. And so he has that authority. So that's what he's saying as far as ministry opportunities. We'll talk about that later on. Verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. That's the ministry opportunity we're talking about. And no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And he's given these ministry opportunities to them and us if we rely on his strength, not our own, if we stay faithful to the word of God and what it says, 
And if we are loyal to him, which means we don't become worldly and cr- commit spiritual adultery, becoming worldly. So we went all over through that last week and flushed all that out, but that's where we're at. Now he continues on in more promises to us and more promises to that remnant church. It's not only a promise for them historically, but it's a promise to the entire church because what you're going to see is promises that go beyond the historical setting. And that's what you're seeing in the seven churches, that there's condemnations and promises that go beyond the historical situation that apply to the church in general. And so these promises that you're about to study that we're going to unpack are for the church in general, and these promises particularly are for the remnant church. So, that being said, on your outline, one and two should be filled in. That's what we dealt with last week. Now we're going to go to points three and four. So let's go into the promises that Jesus gives this church and us, who, who we believe we are the faithful remnant, and go to point number three and unpack this a little bit. Point number three says this, Jesus encourages us by promising our future vindication, vindication and future deliverance from the great tribulation that's talked about in Revelation that we're studying. So let's unpack this. Verse 9, another promise. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now he's going to do something to them, but let's unpack what he's referring to. Historically, what was going on, so you can understand the context, it was Jew upon Jew persecution. The early church was Jewish, and these Jewish believers in Messiah were being persecuted by their own Jewish brethren who did not believe in Messiah, and they were getting that kind of persecution, Jew upon Jew. That's why it's referred to as the synagogue of Satan, okay, because they were getting persecution from the synagogue. And he says, they say they're Jews and they're not, but lie. Well, what was happening is the Jewish mindset, because of Phariseeism, taught that just if you were a Jew, you were automatically saved. So that's by default, if you're born a Jew, you're saved. That's what the mindset was. Well, when Jesus came into that situation, he proved and said, according to Scriptures, that's not how it goes. You're saved by faith. Whether your, your physical descendancy is Jewish or Gentile, it doesn't matter. You're saved according to faith. Now, Paul will make that point, as you know, in Romans 2 and Romans 9. And he'll say in Romans 9, not all of Israel is Israel, right? So there's a believing remnant in Israel, and there is a non-believing remnant in Israel. It's always been like that through Old Testament history. So anyway, that's unpacked. And so what Jesus is telling these Jewish believers is I know they say they're Jews, but they're really spiritually not because they, not, they have not believed in me. They are of the non-remnant. Now, in Hebrew terms, what Jesus is saying is exactly what the prophet Hosea said. He said, that, well, God would say, tell Israel to the non-remnant, you are the lo-ami in Hebrew, which means not my people. And then to the remnant of Israel, he would call the ami. A-M-M-I, Ami, which means my people, and Lo-Ami means not my people. And that's what Jesus is distinguishing between these two, two, two sets of Jews. The remnant are the Ami, and the non-remnant of Israel is the Lo-Ami. That's the Hebrew context that's going on here. And he says they lie, but let's unpack what does he mean when he calls them the synagogue of Satan. I think it's important for you to understand this. And, and the, the, the characterization is that they lie. Well, the way you could rephrase this in the Greek is you can call it Satan's synagogue, which means that this area of worship belongs to Satan, not to God. That this area is controlled by Satan. It's his place. It belongs to him. It is the bedrock of false doctrine, false religion. So Judaism is a false religion because it's a works-based system. So any time in the world that you see a works-based system of religion or even those who claim to be Christian, and it's works-based, which I mean mean is that they're working their way to heaven based on good works, that is the tip-off that it is controlled by Satan. And so there's a lot of churches that are controlled by Satan. Obviously, every false religion out there is controlled by Satan. Whether we're talking about Islam, 
Or we're talking about Hinduism with their gods of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Or we're talking about even cults that claim to be Christian like the Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses. All works-based systems, which is satanic. Why are they so satanic? Because they're bypassing the Messiah. They're trampling on the blood of Messiah, saying it's not good enough. I'll work my way to heaven. That is Satan's ground. That is the whore of Babylon. And so that's why Jesus names what they're doing as the synagogue of Satan. In the fact that their synagogues are controlled by Satan. Their churches, so to speak, are controlled by Satan. Now, here's the deal. The tactic Jesus names, the tactic that they use when they're in these places controlled by Satan is they lie. They say they're Jews, but they lie. Now, what, is, what do you mean? In that historical context, they were saying, we're the people of God. We're the people of God, not you who believe in Yeshua of Nazareth. You guys are not of God. We're of God. And so the, the claim is we're the people of God, but they lie, Jesus says. They're lying. They're not my people. So you bridge it to today and what's happening whether you're dealing with Islam, you're dealing with Hinduism, you're dealing with Buddhism, you're dealing with Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, Scientology, you just name all the false religions out there. They're all claiming to be the people of God. All of them. The cults, every one of them claim to be the people of God. And that you and I are not. That's what they're saying. But Jesus is saying they're lying. And Satan has deceived them. Because he's made them think that they're of God because they're such nice people and they, su- they do such great things and they work really hard. And, and so he has deceived them to thinking they're the people of God. That's how our world thinks. That's how the religious left thinks. They think they're the people of God and that you and I are not. So Jesus says the tactic they're using is lying. And that's what Satan uses. What does he do? He's called the serpent. What does the serpent do? He lies. He deceives And he has done this to the majority of the world. The majority of the world has been put to sleep by Satan. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. That's what Paul said to the Corinth church. So all of this to say is, New Bridget today is, you and I should expect, just like the Philadelphia church historically did, since we're part of this remnant church, that they're going to tell you and I that you and I are not the people of God that God hates us, God can't stand us, God is not like us, and that they are. They're going to claim to be the people of God. That's what they're doing today. Now, I didn't have to reach too far to give you some examples of this. This happened just this week, just two examples of this, and I'll show you. One of the examples, I have a picture up here, is what happened at Tasty's Bakery. Kathy Miller on the right-hand side is a picture of her, has Tasty's Bakery. I think there's two locations in Bakersfield. This happened right here, ground zero, okay, guys? Ground zero. I know Kathy Miller. Went to church with her. I know who she is. She's a Christian baker here in Bakersfield. This gay couple, this lesbian couple, came and wanted a cake from her. She refused to do it based on her Christian values. I'm not doing it. She gave them a name. You can go to this bakery. It was another bakery that caters to lesbian and homosexuals and all kinds of stuff. And so she says, you guys can go there and they'll make you a cake. No problem. Well, now she's going to face a lawsuit. She's probably going to lose her business. And there's all kinds of heat coming on Kathy. Now, this is going on all over the place. And you know, now it's here. It's here right here in Bakersfield. So now it's, it's right at your doorstep and my doorstep. We're going to have to deal with it. And like I said last week, Every one of us is going to be pushed into a corner where we have to make a decision. God bless Kathy Miller saying, I'm not doing it. I don't support gay marriage. God bless her. If you find the time this week, go and buy a cupcake or a cookie from her or something. Or go over there and show your support because she's in for the fight of her life. The ACLU is all over this. She's probably going to get sued. She's going to lose her business just like the other bakers in Oregon and Washington and all over the country did because they refuse to violate their Christian values. Now, you know that, and you probably saw this on the news. Interesting enough, just a side note. I want you to notice the couple. You notice the couple? It's a lesbian couple. Notice that every homosexual couple and lesbian couple emulate Genesis. Do you see it? 
God created man and woman, and he should put the two together. Guess what one of them looks like, and look what the other one looks like. Do you see it? Do you see what I'm saying? It's funny. Even in a lesbian or homosexual relationship, one of them will play the female, and one of them will play the male. Huh. I find that so funny, so ironic, so referring back to creation. Oh, one of you has got to play the boy. Gotcha. So we're going to cut our hair shorter, and then that will make me a boy. And then the other one will play the femme. It's classic, isn't it? It's hearkening back to Jesus. Even intuitively, they know. They know it. Let's move on. Here's what I want to show you. Exactly what Jesus is saying. They're going to say, you're not God's people. We are the people. The two lesbians said, how can she serve that kind of God? What kind of God does she serve? She's not a Christian. I went on Yelp, and I looked down the comments. And Yelp had you erase most of the comments on there because it was so vile. So, so mean and nasty. I can't imagine these trolls that get on the internet and say what they say. I dare them to do, say what they say in person. But these little internet trolls, that's all they do. I picked up some comments. I want you to see what Jesus said versus what they're saying about her and see if it doesn't echo the same thing Jesus is saying. These are the cleanest ones I could find, Right? This is Arthur L. from Minnesota. These people don't even live here in Bakersfield. They are haters, not bakers. Carlos from Sacramento. Their cakes stink. Their bigotry stinks even worse. What's next in Trump land? They don't even make cakes for blacks or Mexicans because of their sincerely held beliefs. Save yourself some karma and go somewhere else. This is from Pat in Florida. We can no longer support this business after reading how they have twisted the religion we love into something extremely negative. All God's children deserve the same treatment. So very sad about this. wonder what God, God she serves. Erica, Thousand Oaks. God loves everyone. It is you that doesn't. So if this was God's bakery, he sure would accept gays and everyone. Ken in Oakland, a homophobic religious fanatic business. They think they can speak for God. Pathetic. Diana Brea, she's hoping for God's blessing through her work. She does not deserve it. Her claim to be a Christian is contradictory by her distasteful actions to deny service. She needs to read her Bible and go to church as God speaks of love to all, for all, and from all. How could she believe she is working for God, representing him through her shady, prejudiced bakery business when he does not recognize or harbor prejudice towards any, any human? Shame on you. You are a grave misrepresentation of what God stands for. Don't hide behind your church to cover up your hate. It clearly shines through your ugly soul. I can only wish you a rainbow to color your sad and hateful heart. And lastly, Lynn from Santa Rosa. This, this takes the cake, so to speak. Not to, No pun intended. You wouldn't make a same-sex couple their wedding cake because of your beliefs, question mark. You'll go to hell for this one. Yeah, thank you. That's the trolls on the internet, right? That's the trolls. We get them. But the trolls are out there. The trolls are the majority out there, by the way. They feel this way. This is a Christian standing up from the principles, and what are they saying? You don't represent God. You're twisted Christianity. You're twisted faith. You're going to hell. Folks, Jesus is saying that's what they're going to say about you. That's what they were saying about the Philadelphians. The Philadelphians, by the way, just like Kathy Miller, lost their businesses. They couldn't do business in Philadelphia because they lost their citizenship. They pulled it and revoked it because they were so hateful, so to speak. Let me show you another thing that happened this week. This is the Nashville statement that came out this week. You can go online, check it out. It has a preamble, it has a whole document about how Christians are coming out. There's like 150 Christian leaders evangelicals that came out to make a statement and saying, look, we support a man and a woman together in marriage. We don't recognize anything else. Number two, we recognize identity, male and females, not transgender. And we don't recognize people having alternative lifestyles and this and that, gay and lesbian. We, we believe these people need help and need to get the freedom from Christ. And it's all documented on there. You can read it online. It's a lot. But of course, 
coming out with a biblical view of marriage, coming against homosexuality or lesbianism as, as an abomination, or transgenderism as an abomination, guess what kind of heat you're going to get? You can only imagine what the trolls are going to say. Jen Hatmaker, Christian. Ladies, do not follow Jen Hatmaker. She's an apostate, just like the other women I've named out there teaching. Jen Hatmaker is an evangelical apostate. She says, the fruit of the Nashville statement is suffering, rejection, shame, despair. The timing is callous beyond words. Here's another statement from some other troll. Jesus didn't say the Nashville statement. Instead, he said the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. Other trolls said, evangelicals have taken Christ out of Christianity. Jesus was not a Christian and certainly would not condone evil and condoned by, by these religious that claim to believe in his teachings. These churches worship power, wealth, guns, and control of women and sex and media. They support lies and liars that make billions from telling those lies. And they are armed and prepared to kill anyone whom they think do not belong. Wow. The teachings of Jesus inspire compassion and caring. The problem is too many of these churches who profess to believe in him do not follow his example. Other trolls, evangelical mullahs are here again. Another troll, soulless conservative devils. Another response, real Christians judge the statement to be an abomination and in defiance of Christ's teachings. It's funny, Christ is the one who put Leviticus in. Christ is the one who inspired Romans and all these other passages. What Bible are they reading? These small-minded, bigoted, racist homophobes are at the core of Donald Trump's, Trump's shrinking base. Why do they keep doing that? They start winning political things. They're the people driving this ridiculous, discriminatory, military, transgender band. Both that disgusting base and Trump are an embarrassment to this nation. The rest of us need to stand up and be sure our, their voices are drowned out. And just to add fuel to the fire, just so you can get a good taste of it, because I hope this is making you emotional understanding what these people are undergoing because it's coming your way we obviously looked at the last election and we obviously said as a christian look there isn't any perfect candidate out there we understand that so we take the lesser of the evils right do you want a globalist or do you want someone that's going to look out for america okay in the story it, trump's not perfect but a lot of evangelicals voted for trump they are demonizing evangelicals for voting for trump saying you're a bunch of nazis racist homophobe all this stuff just because you voted for the lesser evil. That, I mean, and now they're making a big deal. So this is what they say. Evangelicals chose bigotry over faith when they endorsed Trump. Shame on you, cult of idiots. You're not Christians. You're nothing but a bunch of infidels who practice bigotry on a daily basis. You put your Sunday best on Sundays, fill up the pews with yourself and claim to worship God. But you do not worship God. You worship yourselves and trash like your idol, Trump. There's a special place in hell for people like you. You see what I'm saying? You see what's going on here? They say the LGBT community doesn't want us saying you've chosen a gay lifestyle. They say we don't want you to say go and sin no more. We don't want you to say love the sin or hate the sin. We, want, we don't want you to say stop flouting your sexuality. They say we don't want you to say God created Adam and Eve. We don't want you to say the Bible clearly says... We don't want you to say you don't agree with our sexuality. We don't want you to say homosexuality is a sin. We don't want you to say Jesus can change you. Because otherwise you're just a, a, a sexist, leftist, or sorry, uh, uh, bigot, racist, homophobe, whatever you want to call it. Interesting enough, I'm going to bring this back. But if you do a little research, nothing has really changed. In the era that was closest to the Philadelphia church, when this was going on in that historical time period, Tacitus, writing in 115 AD, you know, John wrote Revelation in 95 AD. Tacitus, a Roman historian, wrote about Christians in his day. I want you to hear what he said in 115 AD and see if it doesn't sound the same as today. He calls Christians at that time a class hated for their abominations and guilty of hatred of the human race. He says, this is not a religion, but a deadly superstition. Hence, it is worthy of suppression. Nothing has changed, has it? That was in 115 AD, and they were saying that about the Christians at that time.
What's the promise? Jesus has stated, I know they're saying that I don't love you, that you don't worship me, that you've twisted your Christianity, and that you're the evil ones. But here's my promise. Let's go back. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. This ought to be a promise you put on your refrigerator anytime some knucklehead says you're not a Christian. Some knucklehead that says that's the t- twisted God or, or whatever that, that you serve. It's not the God of the Bible. My Jesus loves it and accepts everybody. When they say that to you, this is your promise right here. What is it a promise of is vindication. Jesus is saying to the Philadelphia church, I know what they're saying about you. But one day I will vindicate you. Mark it down. I will make them admit in front of me on their knees that I have loved you and not them. And what that term love means is that, that, that don't refer to John 3.16. That's not what it's talking about. This is not what he's saying. It's in counteraction to what they have said about us. They have said that Jesus doesn't love us because we're twisted up. That Jesus loves them for how good of a person they are, so to speak. So don't get wrapped up because God does love everybody. But that's not what he's talking about. It, the love he's talking about is being contrasted with what they're saying about us, that God doesn't love us. He goes, I will make them realize one day on their knees before me that you were the ones that were right. That you were the ones that were correct. That you were the ones that were real Christians that truly had a relationship with me, I will vindicate you for, the, for that on that day. Let me unpack this just a little bit. This is called Operation Footstool. This comes from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And so what's happening now, even though they're persecuting us, it's Operation Footstool at the same time. All the enemies are going to be made to submit to Jesus and bow before him. Interesting thing, not only is he going to vindicate us, he's also going to vindicate Israel. The same is said about Israel. This is very interesting. He's going to vindicate the church, and then he's going to vindicate Israel. Look at this other passage. I found this interesting. This is in Isaiah. Also, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you, call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. He's not only going to vindicate the remnant church, he's going to vindicate remnant Israel as well. The two vehicles that God used, he will vindicate both. He's going to vindicate them in the millennial uh, kingdom. Okay, so unpack this a little bit, Brandon. Okay. It doesn't distinguish between unbeliever and believer. It's a promise to believers, and what he's going to do is vindicate us in front of other believers and even unbelievers, because it doesn't distinguish of who he vindicates it to. It's for us, but it doesn't distinguish it. So, you have a twofold application then in who he does this to, and there's two time periods in when he does this. The first one is the vindication of believers to other believers. The vindication of real believers from other believers. What do you mean? Well, take a look around you, what's happening to you. Your own brothers and sisters in the Lord are turning on you for your views, for you holding the line, holding to the truth, whatever issue that is. It could be homosexuality. It could be the issue of Israel. It could be uh, the rapture. It could be any issue. And you're holding the line. And guess what they're telling you? Oh, you're just a bigot. You're just a racist. You need to relax here. And they're compromising. So all those Christians who compromise, all those Christians who are, are apostatizing right now or committing the sin of silence, and then you're sitting there taking the line, standing in the gap, saying what you need to say, and you're taking heat from other Christians. Guess what? The Bible says when the Lord comes back for those Christians, and they're going to be raptured, they will be ashamed at his coming. 1 John 1.28 talks about this shaming of other believers. Now, to add more to this, you go to Matthew 24, 51, and Matthew 25, 30. These are parables given to 
the believers who are waiting for the return of Messiah. And then what the parables reflect is what the master does to certain servants who abused the other servants, who didn't wait faithfully, who gave up, who compromised, who didn't do their master's business. And this might shock you, but I think it's important for the remnant to understand. You will be vindicated. But any Christian playing a game that won't stand up for the word of God, who won't say it like it is and tell it like it is, guess what? You might be loved by the world, but you have something coming to you. Those passages that I named indicate that that believer will be cut in two. It's a literal sawed in two with a saw. What does that mean? It's a metaphor that you're going to get the biggest tongue lashing you have ever imagined from Messiah himself. And he will cut you in two because he will use the sword of his word, which cuts and divides. And he goes, in Matthew, he says, you will get a tongue lashing. You will be cut in two. So do you want a tongue lashing, I say, to those apostate Christians? Would you really want Jesus to give you a tongue lashing for what you did to the believing element, to that remnant element? Also, they get assigned in the kingdom a place of hypocrisy. It's like wearing a scarlet A through the kingdom. They are assigned a portion with the hypocrites. These are believers I'm talking about, not unbelievers. Along with that, they're called evil by Messiah. That they were evil servants. And two, they're called, because of the tongue lashing, the removal of rewards, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't get confused with that with hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is a Middle Eastern phrase of great weeping for a loss of reward. Will there be tears at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, which only believers go? You better believe there will be. There will be some tongue lashings. Jesus will reprimand other believers for persecuting their own believers. So, folks, what I'm saying is your vindication day is coming. I know people are calling you a nut job. And what's surprising you, it's the other Christians, aren't they? It's the other Christians that go to the cotton candy churches that don't tell it like it is. And they come out and you point out books to them. You point out, watch out for that teacher. Watch out, that's a false teacher. That's a false teacher. And guess what grief you get? They don't say thank you, do they? They say, oh, you're legalistic. Oh, you're this. You're a hater. You're a bigot. You're blah, 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 blah. It just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? One day, they're going to get the tongue lashing of their life from Messiah. And they're going to have their reality reoriented and saying, no, no, you were wrong, they were right. And they're going to do it right in front of you as they're on their knees before Messiah. And that's dealing with believers. They're saved, but they're going to lose rewards. The other thing is dealing with the unbelieving element. That will happen after the thousand years, and that will happen at the great white throne judgment. And it happens when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know the passage in Philippians. You know it very well. At that time, when he has the false religions of the world in front of him, on their knees, confessing that Jesus is the one true God, the Muslims that didn't repent, the Mormons that didn't repent, the Jehovah Witnesses that didn't repent, the Buddhists, the Hindus, all the New Agers, all that lined up that would not come to faith in Jesus Christ, he will line them up on their knees and present the bride and say, these were the ones who got it right. You were all wrong. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Into the lake of fire. But before they're thrown into the lake of fire, they will see you and I. They will see those who they mocked and persecuted as saying, oh, you're the haters, you're the bigots, you're this. They will see us and we will be vindicated on that day. That's what Messiah is promising you and I. Let's turn to another promise. Verse 10. Because, or in the Greek, it's since you, or you have kept my command to persevere now, here's the deal. The way this should be translated in the Greek is, you have kept or guarded my word of patient endurance. My word of patient endurance. That's actually how you should translate it. It's kind of a weird way of saying something, but let me show you. This is Messiah's endurance. 
he's talking about. It's Messiah's endurance that he's talking about that was displayed when Jesus was on the earth in the face of persecution. What do you mean? It has to do with the Word of God and holding to it and pronouncing it in the face of persecution, knowing that when you say the truth, you're going to get a pushback. And Jesus obviously took the pushback, right, with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and religious leaders and anyone else they wanted to argue with him. He kept telling them, this is the deal. This is how it goes down. This is the way it is. And if you don't repent, you will die in your sin. You'll be condemned, right? He never backed down. This is what's called the word of patient endurance because it's related to his word. Now, bridge this to us. What what does this mean? He tells the Philadelphia church, I'm going to give you a promise because you have done this particular thing. Basically, it's this, that you and I have not given up on the message of the Bible, the principles of the Bible, the laws of the Bible, the meanings of the Bible, that you are willing to endure persecution in the face of taking your stand and telling people this is what the Bible says and not giving up on that message. So many Christians have given up on the message. They're afraid to offend somebody. They're afraid it's going to hurt their feelings. Well, guess what? The gospel is offensive. Because you know why? It's not just the gospel. It's the whole entire Bible. The Bible is telling humanity, your view of reality is wrong. The only view of reality that that exists is God's view of reality. And he's saying, this is how it is. And they won't accept his view of reality. So they change the reality through language, do they not? Communist Marxists figured this out a long time ago. If you want to change people's reality, change the language. Don't call things that are a sin, sin. Call them something else, an alternative lifestyle, whatever you want to say. Rephrase it. And then if you can rephrase it, what it does is creates a different reality. And so people are not convicted by that reality when things are permissible in their made-up reality. And so what's happening is people are redefining reality based on language. They're not calling sin as it is. And so this is what the Christian is called to do. You say, hey, that lifestyle is wrong. That behavior is wrong. This is right. This is wrong. And you keep saying it and enduring the persecution. That's what Messiah is saying. So many Christians are committing the sin of silence because they don't want the persecution. They just don't want it. Okay, what's the promise? Look at the text. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It's a reference to the rapture. Let's explain this a little bit and unpack this. I will keep you with tarecho ek. Now, if you want a a doctrinal dissertation on this, email me. I'll email you all kinds of uh, articles about the word ek or tareo ek and what John is trying to say. But let me give you a snapshot so you can kind of get a grip on this. The way the Greek is formed, it's a non-motion verb, which means that a motion verb would be be like, I'm saving you from a flood. You're in a flood like it's happening in Houston, and I'm actually rescuing you from that flood. That's a motion verb in the Greek. I'm actually, the action is saving you from something that's happening to you. A non-motion verb, so hold on, because I don't want to lose you like a wet bar of soap. A non-motion verb means I'm going to do an action, but it's not occurring to you right now. Like you're not in the middle of a flood right now, but a flood's coming, and I'm going to keep you from that flood. You're not, you're not even going to go in the flood is that's what a non-motion verb does. It says, I'm going to keep you or remove you from what? And he says, I'll keep you from the hour, which is a period of time, of trial. You're kept from a period of time. It's a shortened period of time. We don't know how long the trial is until we get into later on the book of Revelation. We know, and even Daniel will say, that the time is seven years. That's how long this is, an hour of trial. And notice how this hour is going to come upon, he says, which shall come upon the whole world. Do you see how the promise goes beyond the natural setting to the entire globe, all of planet Earth? So it's a period of time that will affect all of the planet. 
all the people on the world. And notice what it's there to do, to test those who dwell on the earth. This term test does not mean to purify, like purifying silver. Like you'll see passages in the Old Testament, I'm going to purify you, Israel. That's not what it's talking about. This test is this. It's in order to demonstrate the quality of the thing. That's what the Greek is saying, to demonstrate the quality of the thing. Okay, so what is the thing? What is God going to demonstrate through this hour of testing? Those who dwell on the earth. Now, what I want you to do is write in the margin of your Bible, earth dwellers, technical term. John will use this term probably close to a dozen times in the book of Revelation. It's a term you need to be familiar with. The term is earth dweller. It is a common name in the book of Revelation because he uses so much. Now scholars have understood he is using it as a technical term. What do you mean? Well, a technical term means it has one definition. You can't pour different definitions into it. Earth dwellers equals unbelievers. Earth dwellers equal unbelievers. He has just told you and I the purpose of the tribulation. It is to show the entire cosmos, not only humans, but the angelic order and the demonic order, the quality of the unbelievers, the earth dwellers. Why would he do that? What's behind that purpose? Well, I think what you can see, what God is trying to say is, I'm going to show the entire cosmos, demonic, angelic, humanity, dead or alive. I'm going to show everybody that humanity has reached a point to where the sin is so great. Their reality is so perverted. They're so upside down. They call good evil and evil good that they deserve every judgment I'm going to give them in the tribulation. Because in God's theodicy, God allowing evil, so to speak, he must put an end to it. There has to be an end time. There has to be an end date for evil. For God to be just and righteous, he has to put a limit on it and say, that's enough. These creatures are out of control. And I have to end this. I'm going to spare those who come to faith in me, but the rest of them that continue on in their perverted reality and their perverted nonsense of immorality, I have to put an end to. Now, I'll give them all the chances they can through the tribulation, but now it's time to judge. And the grace has ended. There is a time when grace is, lim- grace is limited. You get it for some time, but once you exhausted grace, all you can have left is judgment. Now, please stay with me. Because theologically, it's important to understand because what's happening is a reforming of the Tower of Babel. It's happening right before our very eyes. All the nations are coming together, and they're going to get consumed under one language, so to speak. Now, I want you to think about this. When you go back to Genesis and what was happening in the Tower of Babel, they were all clumped up together, no nation states, all one people, one language, and let us build a name unto ourselves. Name, when, in the Hebrew understanding, when someone has the ability to name, it means that they have authority. When Adam named the animals, it means he had authority over them. So anybody that starts naming things, they have authority. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us give our own authority so we can define right and wrong and a new reality. And let us do that through our language. We will change the reality through our language. And what did God do? He confused the languages. Why did he confuse the languages? Because if all of humanity is saying the same thing, they're all in the same reality. And that reality was getting ready to rebel against God with an antichrist figure called Nimrod. And they were going to, all of humanity would rebel. So it confused the languages so they can have a different nation states, but also to keep the, the, the people from going hog wild into an alternative reality. The nation states were a preventative measure of stopping evil. But what's happening today? They want to eliminate nation states, don't they? They want it all clumped together, and they all speak the same language. Now, wait a second. What language are they speaking? Is it English? No, 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 no. You don't. It's a spiritual thing. You have to understand what language means. They're redefining reality. That's what's happening. What do you mean? 
I don't care what language or what country you go into at this point. Because of the UN and the global influence, homosexuality is almost accepted universally. You see how the language permeated all the cultures? Other sins are being accepted as normal in all cultures. So what's happening is the Tower of Babel is starting to occur again. They're speaking the same route. In fact, you know, they all pump this climate care and all this junk. Whatever topic they come up with, they're all speaking the same language. And because of that, a new Tower of Babel is being formed right in front of our very eyes. And a new Nimrod will rise. And you know what? This time, he's not going to stop it. He's going to allow it. Humanity, I'm going to give you what you want. You want an alternative reality? You want to say good is evil and evil is good? Fine. But before I do that, I will take my people and take them off planet Earth and leave you earth dwellers there to live in that reality. Welcome to the tribulation. Welcome to your new king, the Antichrist. Welcome to your new whore of Babylon. I hope you like her because now I'm going to judge you. You are giving you a chance to repent, but the time is up now. I'm taking my people home with me. The implications of this. You and I, this is the strongest passage for a pre-tribulational rapture. Because to be on the earth during this time is to be hit by the wrath of God. And you and I are promised, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and even in this passage, that we're kept from this hour. We're removed from it. And I can tell you this, folks, this is not because I have a presupposition. I came from a Catholic background, an all-millennial view. And when I was studying all this, I had to figure out what view is right, what view of the rapture is right. They have mid-trip, post-trip, all this other junk. Some people don't even believe in the rapture. But by the way, when you look at this and you look at the Greek language and you see all of this and the analogy of Scripture, all it comes to is this. A pre-tribulational rapture is the only thing that syntactically from the Greek language makes sense, only thing that works theologically. But you know what's under attack today? A pre-tribulational rapture. If you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, guess what they're calling you? These are other Christians. Oh, you're a tinfoil type of Christian. You're one of those wackadoos. You're the ones that are date setting. You're the ones that you're getting heat for believing in the correct doctrine. That's okay. You take the heat because they're going to get reprimanded at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. That's okay. You just keep taking it. Let's go to the last promises. We'll wrap things up. Jesus promises rewards to those believers who preserve this, uh, sorry, persevere despite persecution and opposition. Verse 11, behold, I am coming quickly, which means suddenly, unexpectedly, without announcement is what the Greek is trying to say, which implies imminency. The reason Jesus can say this, because a rapture doesn't have any signs attached to it. I can come in any moment. Hold fast, Philadelphia. That's all of you. What you have, that no one may take your crown. Don't let anyone take your crown. There's five crowns in the Bible talking about rewards and privileges and authority in the the Messianic kingdom. And the Philadelphia church is going to be crowned with many, many crowns because of their faithfulness to the word of God. But he says, don't let anyone take your crown, man. The term, don't let anyone take your crown, it's not the idea of a thief coming in the night and stealing a crown from you. It's the idea of a competitor running in a race and being disqualified because he didn't compete according to the rules. That's what the Apostle Paul said. He said that to the Corinth church, he did not. He was afraid of being disqualified. How do you become disqualified and lose your crown? Well, you don't compete according to the rules. Okay, what are the rules? Well, the Scriptures, okay, that's easy. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to let, if this happens to you, you will let other people take your crown. He says, don't let someone else take your crown. Don't let someone disqualify you. Are you catching what he's saying? The first thing is you're going to disqualify yourself, possibly. 
If you don't compete according to the rules, if you don't follow what Messiah says, if you cave in to the persecution coming your way, you'll disqualify yourself. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you're going to be disqualified for rewards. I think I said it last week, we're our own worst enemy. Apostasy will get you disqualified. What do I mean? If you incorporate false beliefs into your theological system, you will lose rewards. You'll still be saved. But this is what's happening to Christians all over America. They're apostatizing. They're letting things in, doing things no Christian would ever do. The other thing, too, from the passages in Scripture, what causes people to lose their rewards is sometimes their friends. What do you mean? Yeah, there are other Christian friends. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Let me give you an example from the Bible. Paul uses the phrase, bad company corrupts good character. You remember that? Do you know what the context is for that? The Corinth church believers were hanging out with other believers who didn't believe in the resurrection bodily. And so he says, hey, look, you're hanging around apostates who don't believe in a physical resurrection. He says, bad company corrupts good character. What's the implication? Get away from them. Because you'll join in their apostasy. Bad company corrupts good character. They'll pull you down. You won't pull them up. They'll pull you down. If you're hanging around with Christians, folks, and I know they're good friends of yours. If you're hanging around with Christians that are involved in apostasy, separate. Because it will end up causing you to stumble and be disqualified. You'll let that person take your crown. And the other thing is your family. Your family can take your crown. So many Christians are compromising the word of God because of a family member who's involved in something, whatever it is. And that person is involved in something. So what ends up happening? It relaxes their stand against it because that person's involved in something the Bible condemns. And so they get relaxed in it. And so end up, what do they do? They're going to lose a crown. Peers can do it. And this has to do with employment. There's a passage in John 12 that there was many Jews and Pharisees that actually believed in Messiah, but they actually kept silent because they were going to be put out of the synagogue. Remember the blind man that got healed and his parents didn't want to mess with them? They were silent. They said, you ask him. He's old enough. We don't want to get involved. You know what they were, why they, they stayed silent? They didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. Because if you get kicked out of the synagogue, you can't do business. I'm going to tell you what's going on right now with a lot of Christians. They're compromising their Christianity for climbing the ladder of success. That's what's happening. At some level, you have to compromise if you're going to continue to go all the top in this world. At some point, you will. You'll be called on to compromise. And I'm going to tell you what. Every time I talk to people, have lunch with them, and I find out what's happening at their works and things like that, they will repeatedly tell me, There's these other Christians that are compromising their Christianity so they can climb the ladder of success. Whoop-de-doo. You're earning a few more bucks, but would you want a tongue lashing from Jesus? I don't think so. For a few more dollars? So you can live at least a little bit more comfortably? Have another little thing? Is it really worth it to lose a crown for all eternity for that? And last one, and people don't expect this one. Jesus will take your crown. And that will happen at the Bema seat. I only say this to caution you. Because if you live a life and you, you don't play by the rules, the biblical rules, Jesus might be the one who takes your crown. Because in several parables, the parables of the meaning, the parable of the talents, he tells them to him who has, who has reward, has done well, he will give in an abundance. But those who don't have, the one who buried his talent, the one that's disqualified, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will have an abundance. And he who doesn't have, what he has will be taken from him. He will take it from them and give it to somebody else. You don't want Jesus doing that. Another promise, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. Let me show you some pictures of what was happening in Philadelphia so you can kind of understand the context here. The first one, these are the remains of Philadelphia, a very Greek, Greco-Roman society. And either Jesus is using the ideas of the pillars here or he's using the Old Testament pillars in Solomon's temple, the two pillars that stood in front of the, the temple. Either way, the point is still made because 
what happened is Philadelphia had a lot of earthquakes. They still do today in Turkey. It's constantly shaking there. But the way they constructed their, their, their buildings, they made them earthquake-proof. That's why even today, with all these earthquakes, these pillars still stand after 2,000 years. They constructed them in a way that they could, they, they could withstand earthquakes, and they had major earthquakes there. A couple more pictures, and you'll see the pillars still there from 2,000 years ago. One of the, the problems why they have so many earthquakes is there's a volcano right there. And that volcano causes tremors all the time. And you know what happens to the people who live in Philadelphia, even today, or even back then in history? When they felt those tremors, they ran out of their houses. They ran out of, out of all their buildings. They would run into the farmland and into the, the open land. You know why? They didn't want things falling on them. And so this is why Jesus says you're never going to be removed. He goes, you'll never go out anymore. You're never going to have to run from the earthquake. And this idea, and, and you see these, this is the kind of earthquakes they're having even in modern-day era. This is how bad they were. Okay, what's this promise? This promise is to the Philadelphia church or the remnant church that I am going to establish you and give you strength, and you will never be moved. You will never have to run because you're insecure. This world has taken everything from you, taken your security away, but I will give you security for the rest of your life and into the kingdom, and no one will ever move you. I don't have enough time to develop it, but insecurity is one of the major problems Christians face in this world. They're insecure because they're losing things constantly. And God is saying, I am the one that gives you security. I will make you a pillar, and never will you be able to be moved. It's a great promise. And he continues on, and there, now here's our identity. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's identity. The idea of God writing his name on you harkens back to the Levitical priesthood, and especially the high priest. I think we have a picture of that. On the mitre of the high priest, he would have Kadesh, which is holy unto God, stamped on him. It was his symbol. Well, that's going to be stamped on you and I. We're God's property. These people say we're not of God, but God's saying, I own you. I'm, you're mine. I have a relationship with you, and I'm going to put my name on you. So it has to do with identity. And he goes, I'm going to put the city of New Jerusalem, your new home. You've lost your home through persecution. You've lost everything, but I have given you a permanent dwelling in the New Jerusalem. And then he says, I'm going to give you the name of Jesus that no one knows. And no one yet knows this name of Jesus yet. It will be revealed in the kingdom. And it's a new responsibility that Jesus will have in the kingdom. But guess what? He's going to give us the name too. You know why? It implies that we will participate in whatever that duty is. Jesus will share that duty with us. And it's not yet revealed. We'll find that out later on. What's the takeaway from all of this? There's a lot of promises the promises, if you can read through them, are a promise for those dealing with persecution for holding to the Word of God. And that you're, because you have lost everything for holding on to the Word of God, and you're going to lose your career, maybe. You can lose family members. You can lose friends, employment opportunities, all this other stuff you're going to lose. And he's saying, that's okay, because I will give it back to you. In fact... He told the disciples when the disciples complained to him, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus says, who has ever given up houses, brothers, sisters, or fathers, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for the sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Did you catch that? A hundred times. You and I are going to lose things for our stand for Jesus, and you're going to lose a lot. By the end of your life, you will have nothing if you continue to stand for God. But God's saying this, I'm going to give everything back to you. Don't worry about what they take from you. I'll give it back to you. I'll give your security back. I'll give your identity back. I'll give everything back to you 100-fold, not just your life back one time. A hundred times, you'll get your life back. Everything. Just hold fast until I come for you because I'm taking you out of this world. Maybe you saw this in the news today. This kind of harkens to what we're saying here. It's a picture of a carrot with a carrot wrapped around it, another kind of carrot. 
and you might have seen the news, this is a carrot that grew with a ring in it. And this was found in, in a gal's uh, uh, backyard in her garden. She was 84. She's 84. And what apparently had happened is 13 years ago, she was out gardening, and she lost her wedding ring. And it was lost in the, you know, the, the garden. And this is up in Canada or whatever. So 13 years go by, and they were growing carrots, and they harvested this carrot. And this carrot had her wedding ring wrapped around it after 13 years. So they cut it out and washed it with some soap and water, and the ring went right back on her finger and fit just like it, it always had after 13 years. And it grew around a carrot. Isn't that the weirdest thing? Bizarre. But the point is, her wedding ring came back to her. She thought she had lost it, and it came back to her. That's the point Jesus is saying. You're going to lose everything. He goes, I know for my sake. He says, that's okay. Because just like this lady who found the carrot, I'm giving everything back to you. But you're going to have to wait to the next life. And the next life, a hundredfold. A hundredfold. Don't ever forget that. A hundredfold. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.